The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there is a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. I am Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host and Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. And you can follow live tweeting of the show, ask questions or make comments about the show during the program on Twitter at hashtag bigbeacon. Our first segment is sponsored by the book that is Transforming Higher Education, a whole, a whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at WholeNewEngineer.org. It's not just for engineers anymore. And today we're, uh, we're blessed to be uh, joined by um, uh, scholar activist Sheila Tobias. Welcome to the show, Sheila. Thank you. Happy to be on. Well, it's great to be here. And we met through uh, Rick Miller and in connection with some of your work in uh, promoting a more liberal approach to the teaching of engineering for all of us. Uh, That's right. That engineering is not just for engineers anymore, I guess. That's right. <laughs> yeah, so. and so, um, and we'll talk about that maybe in one of our later segments, but uh, on the show we like to get to know our, our guests a little bit, and um, you, you've been a consultant, you're an author, you're a writer, and, and I, love your, I love your label, Scholar Activist. Um, <laughs> And we want to talk about that activism in a moment. But let's go back in the time machine. What were some of the early influences that put you on your your path, your life's path? Well, I've said it publicly, and I'll say it again. I took a course as an entering freshman at Harvard University many, many years ago. And it was meant for non-science majors, which is what I fully expected to be. The course was taught by a man who became quite famous later, He's Thomas Kuhn, and he wrote the book, The Structure of Scientific Revolution. And what he was saying, and what I got out of the course, was uh, that a lot of very, very smart people, notably scientists in history, had hung on to what he called the dominant paradigm, a certain theory, longer than they should have. <clears throat> in other words, uh, the theory was no longer being supported by the data or by the research, but yes. they were smart, but not able to look critically at their own belief systems. I could spend the rest of the hour giving you examples from his book, but I won't do that. What I got out of it, and it was absolutely transforming for a young person, was the, the notion that very many very smart people could be wrong about something, 
anything. I didn't at the time have any clue as to what I would be finding wrong, uh, but it uh, stayed with me. And I'm grateful to Thomas Kuhn for that uh, insight. The other thing that played, uh, played a big role later in my <clears throat> criticism of science education, especially at the college level, was uh, Kuhn's own prejudice. And here's how this goes. Years later, I was telling the story of Thomas Kuhn, who remained my hero. In my audience was his daughter. This was at Wellesley College. His daughter was a computer scientist. So obviously he was never prejudiced about women. But I had always wondered, all those many years, why he didn't encourage me personally to study science. I had written the best exam in the class. I know that because he wrote that on my exam. He'd never called me in to discuss my career, my future, my studies. I was on a trajectory to be a history major, maybe politics too, and he must have known that. So I asked his daughter, what did she think was the reason that I didn't get that encouragement? And she said, here's his phone number, call him. So there I was, you know, 25 years later, talking to Thomas Kuhn on the phone about a person he didn't remember, I have to be honest, and asking him why he didn't encourage people like me who did so very well in his history of science course to stay in the field. And his answer cut me to the quick. It showed a deep prejudice on his part and on the part of a lot of science faculty. Namely, if I were not already signed up for science as a major, I would never, could never be converted. I was 18 years old, Dave. Mm. I was, you know, I was hardly formed. I hadn't any clue as to what I was going to do with my life. And yet I was dismissed, and not just by him, but by the entire science faculty as not being serious about science because I hadn't asked for a chemistry set at age five. That's a deep prejudice I've spent many years trying to fight. Well, that's, and, and I, I, that's a lovely set of stories, and it, and it helps me connect some of the dots that I've been trying to put together in in preparing for the show. And I hope we talk about some of those things. And you know, so it's interesting sometimes how you know we always I try always to ask guests to the show you know what um, what inspired them. And and sometimes I get positive answers, and then sometimes I get sort of reactionary mm-hmm. answers where people yeah where people were inspired by somebody telling them they couldn't do something or they right. they right. shouldn't do something. And so I'll, I'll ask I'll ask my second question. Uh, you know, we are interested in these unleashing experiences, whether they're positive or negative. And and you've just told the, and and I and I have to confess too that I you know in 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 my being a, a rev, uh, an engineering revolutionary, I too was inspired by uh, many of the by Kuhn's example and and called out. Um, it called out his famous book and in some of the things that I I wrote in the early days of iPhone reading, uh, and in the early days of trying to set up a um, uh, a regular conference on the philosophy of engineering and and um, but uh, but I guess my question to you right now is um, okay so we're interested on the show especially in unleashing experiences where um, and I think it's a different question than the one you just answered where where somebody or something gives people the courage to go their own way and I, we might have heard part of that story in what you just said but you've you've beaten a fairly unconventional path in your career. What gave you the courage at age 18 and thereafter to go in the unconventional directions that you did? 
I learned uh, German because I was interested in Germany and went to work in Germany as a mm-hmm. journalist immediately after college, where, incidentally, there wasn't much prejudice against me as a female, which would have been the case in the United States, you know, when we're talking about the 50s. But I was treated there as an American, so I was very interesting. America just won a war against Germany. Sure. And Germans like winners, even if they are defeated, I made that comment. So I came back a little bit spoiled. I'd been taken seriously in that country, came back to graduate school, which is what people recommend to somebody who's a very good student as an undergraduate, and chose to study at Columbia University German history and politics. And I was not really fitting in. Okay, you know the feeling when you you can't quite articulate it, but you don't fit in. And one day I realized from common discussion about scholars, that the scholar has to be motivated, driven, really, to want to have the last word on a subject. I mean, that was what we were being socialized to do, be very fussy, you know, get your cards ready, uh, check every fact. You want to have the last word on the subject, so the piece of work you're doing as a scholar never has to be done again. Got it? You've heard that, too. Well, I looked into my soul. I was already 28 years old because I'd had the four or five years in Europe and said to myself, you know, Sheila, you don't really want to have the last word on the subject. You want to have the first word on the subject. Mm -hmm. And that's what I told my professor when I quit. So a very transforming experience, and I hope this is inspiring to some of the students listening, is the willingness and readiness to quit something that doesn't suit you, that doesn't fit. Not because I was failing. It was impossible for me to fail a course. I have that kind of a retentive mind. But because it was uh, not where I wanted to be. So here I was saying, age 28, I want to have the first word on a subject, and I had no idea what that subject, or as it turns out, subjects were going to be. Yeah. That's so interesting. And and, I, and you actually, you, you said to me that I've had that experience too. I actually haven't. Engineering scholarship is different. You expect you, you expect to be in the middle of a stream of technology, but you almost never expect that you're going to have the last word in anything technological. Yeah, it's different. It is different. But anyway, so that's, that, that's so interesting on both those um, uh, dimensions. And so, so these are, I, I love these stories. And, and as I mentioned before, we met before, uh, um, uh, from, uh, Rick Miller at Olin College introduced us, and we're both and friends of Olin. David, yeah, uh, about a year or so ago. And uh, well, and thank you for, thank you for reading the book. And 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 of course, your activism goes back to the times that we're talking about, and and some of the first um, uh, Black Studies and Women's Studies courses and programs in the country. And I, I found some of that in your biography so interesting. What? Uh, I think this is near the beginnings of, uh, of of when you transition from being an academic into more of your activist kind of role. What can you tell us about those early experiences? Well, like many academics, where I was most comfortable was in a university. So even when I didn't get a Ph.D., I looked for jobs in uh, lower-level administration at universities and was fortunate to be hired at Cornell University. And incidentally, and this is part of my evolution, Mm. uh, to be working for the vice president for academic affairs, who was a physicist. He liked to say later on, because I married a physicist, that I was his first, I was the first physicist in 
Uh, he was the first physicist <laughs> in my life. But uh, in truth, I had been meeting lots of scientists. Uh, you can't help it when you hang out in academia. And sure. I was always impressed. Impressed with their knowledge base, which I didn't share. Impressed with their analytic skills. Impressed with their commitment to current events, which very often historians and literary people are not. Mm. And so uh, it at Cornell... I was working with the vice president on a number of subjects and taking in some impressions about scientists, all of which would be developed later on. In the immediate time, the black students at Cornell, as you may remember, uh, if you were around then, uh, had a revolution, took over the Willard Strait Hotel, uh, and we were we were somewhat in awe and frightened of this um, development in, in higher education. It seemed to be breaking the belief that we are all one people and there is only one scholarship and there's only one body of knowledge because they were challenging what they called the dominant paradigm again of the liberal education, which did exclude African history, Africana studies, as they called it, and the sociology of black people in the United States. And I was very empathic. They, and I like to say this publicly as often as I can because it's not said often, they were really the model for women's studies. There was a black studies, a nascent black studies program at Cornell. I was paying close attention to it. The women's movement was just beginning to form in New York and California and elsewhere. And a call went out among feminists, early feminists, mm. that the, that the uh, curriculum needed to be reformed quite as much as government and society. And so it was natural for me, being at Cornell, where there was such an active black studies program, to take some leadership in women's studies. So that, yes, so that's, that's okay. And so that's so interesting. And so that led to, I guess, uh, one of the first women's studies courses in the country and, and one of the first women's uh, studies programs in the country. At that's Cornell. right. It was 1970. And yeah. uh, again, I was, because, well, I keep wanting to say, because I wasn't hamstrung by expectations of a scholar, I was much freer than other people to do things my own way. Here's an yeah. example. 1970, we teach this course. We rent a room, uh, assign a room for 90 students, 300 students wow. enroll. And I said to everybody, it was obvious, we have a tiger by the tail. How to get the word out was the question. I was invited in June, that very same semester, to give a talk about women's studies. It was barely named at the American Psychological Association. I know there's a format for giving talks to scholars. You know, you have a paper, and yep. you have uh, research, and you have findings. But I wasn't a psychologist. I was a foreigner. What could I do to explain women's studies to a group of mostly women, obviously, who were curious but had no background. And so I borrowed a concept from another scholar, which was that the purpose of women's studies is to make up for the omissions, the distortions, and the trivialization about women and women's uh, lives that have abounded in history and psychology and sociology. And to make my point you know, strongly, instead of talking about it, I brought along a uh, Xerox set, it was the old days of Xerox, of 16 course 
syllabi I had found already extant around the country. Cornell's mm. was among the first, but it might not have been the very first. And I handed those out free of charge to everybody in the audience, and I said, in place of a paper or a talk, I'm going to give you these to take back and ask you, looking over whether you don't agree that this is a subject that the curriculum has to be expanded to include. And that's how we launched women's studies around the country. Great story. And so those these programs are now a commonplace, and, and certainly the methods that you employed then have um, influenced the, the work that you do now. I, and well, of course, we I, didn't have a web, David. You remember there was no web. Of course. So the yeah. way to get things out was to put something in an envelope, and put an address and a zip code, and mail it or go to a conference and hand distribute. Yeah. And so... As you look, as you look at uh, at your back at your hand, what what some of your early efforts uh, helped inspire? What um, what are some of the what are some of your takeaways, both positive and negative, in terms? Of how did the how did, did it did you have a vision of how it would turn out? Uh, how has it turned out in your mind as you as you look back uh, with the? Uh, That's a very good question. The, yeah. On the positive side, it's evidence that uh, American higher education is uh, willing to expand and incorporate and do things for the first time that hadn't been done before. Mm. Uh, everyone in higher education, whatever their position, was once a student. And so there's a lot of sympathy for the needs of a student to be on a cutting edge. So that's all very positive. I've been a little disappointed that, as in many such new programs, it became old kind of fast. It became small small-minded, a lot more focus on sex and sexuality than yeah. we had in mind. We were looking more political and at a history of women. But, of course, I'm very pleased at the increase in the numbers of women scholars who are now employed in universities at all levels and I'm very proud of whatever role I played in that. I would not today be satisfied with women's studies because my vision was that all students would take women's studies in order to round out their understanding of our own country, no less the sexes. And I did not want to see women's studies become cornered, so to say, only by feminists and only by women. And that has been the case in many colleges, so I'm a little bit disappointed. Yeah, and I think there's a, there's a general lesson in that, and I'm thinking about it beyond women's studies and the, the politics of women or the politics of race, uh, that, that there's an interesting point here about um, when you create something like a curriculum and you give it a name, and especially in a place that's um, has, uh, like the university that has many departments and has silos to live in, that the silos are happy to live as silos. And wow. so some of the dissatisfaction with the state of race and gender in the country has to do with the with, uh, in some sense, that these ideas haven't diffused in general no. into into common currency. Yeah, even though we do have a woman running for president this year, for yes. the first time in our history, yeah. still yeah. Uh, many, many men, I would say in particular, not to jump ahead, engineers who get all too little general education overall, graduate with an understanding of the dynamic of uh, the sex roles and how they are restrictive both of males and females, unless they read the newspaper. So I am disappointed that it didn't diffuse more generally than it did. 
Man, we could fight about uh, the level of general education of engineers, uh, and and I mean the early early reforms in engineering education expanded it greatly. I I think engineers, to some extent, misuse and don't value the general education that they get, but they've actually got large numbers of hours to devote in most, at least sure. in American curricula and in in other countries that. What you're saying is, is yeah, absolutely true. the case, but in the in the U.S. there's there's quite a bit I, that that it's not well used. Or I remember students coming into my office and asking the que- the the key question, Professor Goldberg, is econ- economics 101 easier than sociology 101? Yeah, I'm and that's sure not. Well. And we we tried to do some things in iFoundry to get them to think of the, these things as uh, integrated into their education, uh, integrated into their education as a human being and as an engineer. And yeah. I think there's there's less of that than we'd all like. But okay, so um, but I think you know, we just talked about one of the lessons um, um, from from this. I think let, let's uh, let's take a break and we'll talk we'll talk about some of the other lessons for change and, and talk about some of the other cool things that you've you've done over the course of your career. How about that? Oh, certainly. All right. This is Big Beacon Radio with our special guest, uh, uh, Sheila Tobias. Stay with us in the next segment as we as we talk about um, some of her work on math and science anxiety as, as well as some of uh, the, what she's learned about transformative change. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. 5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. I'm Dave Goldberg, and the second segment is sponsored by 3Joy Associates. Get the training, coaching, and change leadership consultation to help transform your educational institution. And to uh, ask questions of our guests or make comments about the show, uh, there's live tweeting of, of the show and, and uh, listening for your questions at hashtag Big Beacon on Twitter. And so before the break, we were talking with our guest, uh, Sheila Tobias, about her early activism and, um, 
and we want to we want to shift to. Um, I guess there was a point, Sheila, in about 1974, where where you reinvented yourself. Tell us about that. That's right. Uh, after Cornell, where I was a junior administrator, because of the exposure I got of, as a founder of Women's Studies, I got an offer that I couldn't refuse to be the associate provost, the top female administrator at a men's college in New England that was about to go co-ed. So I was invited, paid actually, to be a change agent. The college had been a men's college since the 1870s, 1840s, I think, and it had a dominant, of course, male faculty, all-male students, a curriculum that was, of course, a, a liberal arts regular curriculum, but all kinds of traditions and habits and, I must say, prejudices. And I got the opportunity to transform all of that, along with the first class, 40% of the freshman class in 1971 were coming in as um, uh, co-ed. I took the job in 1970. The reinvention of myself occurred in 1974. I was very busy, as you can imagine, working at formerly men's college, helping them hire women faculty, even discover where to find women faculty. I was teaching a course in women's studies to very large numbers of students, males and females, and I was busy. But in 1974, I took time to look at the transcripts of these women students compared to the men's as they were coming in. You can imagine that they were very bright and very confident. I mean, to walk into that kind of a den, you had to have your act together. And they were uh, all of that. But they were avoiding calculus. I found on their transcripts what I called, being a writer later, a slippery slide off the quantitative. They would uh, name economics, say, as a subject they thought they wanted to major in before they got there. And by junior year or sophomore year, they had shifted to government. And I knew, as the administrator, that engineering had a calculus requirement, even more, and math, and that government did not. In the same way, they would shift from psychology, which had an advanced course in uh, probability and statistics, to sociology, which did not. And so what jumped out at me, just from reading transcripts with an open mind, was math avoidance. That was the phrase I took from those transcripts, mathematics avoidance. Something was causing them to not have the confidence to take college-level mathematics that they had to take everything else. And I took that idea, began to interview the students directly, ask them about their earlier experiences in math, like a counselor might, and out of that set of interviews came my insight that there is something in women, more than men, though it exists in men as well, I could call math anxiety. And that was the beginning of my second career. And and so and and so, yeah. Say more about math. What so what you what sounds like the so it sounds okay. like these interviews were the the the, the, the start. The, what did you what origin. did you find out? They were yeah. the origin. So what yeah. they were reporting is uh, strange notions. These were all high achieving girls. They yep. said I've been faking math for years. Uh, I I knew that I would not be able to pass, even if even though they never flunked. They had this negative self-image, which is really psychological. And then I began to read widely, of course, and consult with math educators, because this was their field, not my field. What did they know about math avoidance and all of that? And I found them to be 
unfamiliar with or unwilling to consider uh, a metaphor that you know from engineering and I know from hanging out with physicists. It's called a signal-to-noise ratio. In other words, it is possible that these young women had all the brain power and even potentially the confidence and the background to do calculus in college, but they were getting such negative feedback. That's the signal part. Uh, sorry, that's the noise part. They were getting mm. so much noise that it drowned out the signal. Yeah. Uh, and you know from physics what, what happens then. If you get the signal drowned out uh, by the noise, you don't get a clear signal. So using that metaphor as my guide, I invented a system off uh, campus, that is on campus, but not counting as a course, for working on the noise, getting them to talk about their early experiences, the people in their lives who had discouraged them, who had told them you can't do math because your mother can't, or because girls can't, or because I'm your boyfriend and I don't want a girlfriend who does better math than I. All of this I called noise and argued to the math education community for the first time, I don't think they'd ever heard this, that for us to go back and reteach high school algebra to this population would be a waste of time. Rather, we have to exorcise the noise. We have to get rid of the noise, get rid of their lack of confidence, and then I believe, given their brain power, they'll do just fine. And that was my model, that was my theory, and that eventuated in 600 students at Wesleyan taking calculus who had sworn they never would after going through math anxiety reduction, and a book, my first book, and a very big book called Overcoming Math Anxiety. And and so, and what happened with these 600, uh, well, 600 women a, who had... We only got one math major out of this population, but yeah. what we got were a, a group of students, pre-professionals, I like to call yeah. them, who would not in the future be inhibited by mathematics. They might not take a lot of mathematics, but I, I urge them to do what I did then as a non-mathematician you know, and an administrator when I needed somebody to help me solve a, a, a problem in the software now or in... Uh, population control or anything like that, I would take a mathematician to lunch. I was famous for that at Wesleyan. I would call up and say, we're going to lunch, I'm going to pay, and the mathematician would say something like, okay, what do I have to do? That's a healthy attitude. Not everybody has to know everything. That's my takeaway. Not yes. everybody has to be expert at everything. But if you are confident enough in your capacity to learn, then you can learn as you go what you need to know as you go. So that was that worked for me, and I suspect it worked for every student who went through math anxiety reduction. Yeah, I I really like this uh, this notion, the signal to noise uh, metaphor. I, I think that a lot of uh, the things, a lot of the noise that that we confront in making engineering education tra transformations, or even or higher education transformation generally, is a kind of noise. I I put it in terms, these days I put it in terms of, uh, there are lots of stories. We have stories that have some maybe elements of truth in the story, but then there are a lot of assessments built into the story that, that don't serve the, the person and sort of getting the person to reframe their story so that they can do this thing that serves mm -hmm. them is, is, the, is, is crucial. And, and I'm hearing your signal to noise reduction in terms of this kind of story reframing kind of That's thing. Right. Is that, is that, a, is that a way of talking? Yeah. 
Yeah. So what kind of what kinds of steps to and I, so and actually you ha, you is is banishing math anxiety a uh, it's the, a banishing math anxiety is similar to the first book except I wrote it in collaboration with a mathematician as a college algebra textbook a short one if you go to the bookstores in any university and you see a college algebra. Uh, Fine, you know these are these are the textbooks. You'll see big, fat, three hundred page books. And I was trying to test a, an idea I had, which was, can we teach the essentials of college algebra in just uh, less than a hundred pages by dealing as we go along with study skills and study habits and how to prepare for this? And I needed, of course, a professional mathematics teacher who happens to be a mathematician with a Ph.D., and Victor and I joined forces to write this book. It's meant for the um, two-year college student, the community college student, and it's called Banishing Math Anxiety. Okay, so I'm but hearing it as I... I haven't written uh, too much. I wrote another book called Succeed with Math. But the math issue brought me a lot of national attention, and yep. I began to be called by very well-meaning science professors in college, saying they were encountering science anxiety, <laughs> you know. Anxiety began to take off as a concept. And did, what did I think, and should we do something about science and anxiety? And again, thinking, you know, for myself, out of the box, I said, from my own experience, science in the early years is not taught as a frightening subject. Science yes. is fun. You grow plants, you have an aquarium, uh, you do things with your hands. Science is fun, so I doubted, without evidence, but I doubted intuitively that there was such a thing as a buildup of anxiety among elementary school students about science as there is about math. So I rejected the comparison out of hand. I said, it's not science anxiety. But, of course, I'm curious, so I said to myself, so what is it? Why don't we get more students enthusiastic about science right through? And that led to a second and third big research study where I brought in graduate students in the philosophy, literature, history yeah. uh, realm, even somebody in classics, to be paid, paid by a foundation through me, to take for credit intro physics or intro chemistry courses. Their job was to take the course, go to lab, do the homework, take the exam, all the while keeping track of what they observed, what they observed as 22-year-olds. You know, of course, they were four or five years older. And what they observed as the differences in the delivery system and the style of the teaching between this intro-physics, intro-chemistry, and the anthropology or the classics or the literature that they had studied. And that delivered a book, which is in some ways my favorite. I called it They're Not Dumb, Dumb They're Different. different. Yeah. And, and the they in that, uh, in that title are these very advanced, very smart kids who, yeah. with one exception, all got A's in intro-physics, intro-chemistry, and more importantly, delivered to the community. And this book was distributed to 50,000 science faculty in the United States by the foundation and got wide reviews and wide attention because it delivered to them something they told me they had never had before, which is feedback from highly articulate, very smart students who are not in their field. Yeah. Imagine that for engineering. Feedback yeah. as to the nature of these presentations, these classes, the exams, and some of the feedback uh, you quoted to me when we talked before 
what was was brilliant. One woman said, "My IQ." confidently, she said, was sufficient for physics. My OQ, my obedience quotient, she made that up, was not. She experienced the physics classroom as top-down, as do this, do it my way. There's no room for any variation. And that was what she was unused to in philosophy. So that was something I'm extremely proud of. It's not yeah. quite as well known as math anxiety because it, it doesn't, uh, you know, alliterate like that. But it's very, very important uh, opportunity for scientists to look at themselves the way people who were at least as smart as they, but were not in their field. Yeah, and that's so interesting. I, I love that. I, I love the IQ, the o, IQ, uh, enough IQ, not not. I just don't have enough OQ. And 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 uh, Mark Somerville and, and I and a whole new engineer talk about this this polarity between uh, obedience uh, and uh, creativity or freedom, and and that being one of the key polarities in the transformation of engineering education today. It's so interesting that this has shown up um, in, in this. In, in your in early my, work, in yeah, ba- in spades, yeah. So it, um, so, um, and actually, so another title you have is pretty provocative and interesting: revitalizing undergraduate science. Why some things work and and most don't. Um, what I guess so it's hard, you know. So I guess it's hard, it's too long to enumerate all the things that don't work. But what are uh, what well, are some of the big here, things that don't work and do work? Going with this, once I wrote there, not they're different. I became ipso facto you know, a specialist or at least an aficionado of science education. And yeah. STEM education, as you know well, I think we may be in the same age group, uh, was getting a lot of attention in the 80s and 90s from the NSF and a whole lot of foundations. We recognized suddenly that we didn't have enough scientists going forward, or we thought we didn't, and we needed to compete. So everybody got interested in fixing what was broken. And what I was doing in that book was challenging the paradigm of what you do when you want to fix what's broken. And I found it very narrow. The paradigm was that you finance at a university some single change model, and then you wait for it to take off (laughs) and to, you know, succeed. And I, again, in my own style of thinking, which is a little more sociological, I guess, than uh, theirs, thought, that's not the case. Everywhere I was going to speak about they're not dumb, they're different, I would be introduced to their science education reformer. You've got to meet Mr. Smith. He's doing our reform. And it was obvious. It would have been obvious to anybody. That's not the way you do reform. You don't get one person and give that person money to do something. Maybe you disagree, uh, Dave. No, I don't you disagree. No, that's a social collaborative but, but process. But you have to get buy-in, and you have yeah. to change the parameters, and you have to change the structure. So that's what uh, that book was about, uh, What, why most things don't work and some things do. And I did find some remarkable places, uh, a college in Southern Colorado, which is um, well mostly frequented by Native American students, with a very... Uh, extensive chemistry major to which they were all uh, assigning themselves, and very few of them in biology. So, you know, as a closet sociologist, you have to say, what's chemistry doing that biology isn't? And when I went up there for a site visit, it was obvious. They walked me past a big lecture room in the chemistry department and said, we closed that room five years ago. We don't teach intro chemistry anymore to 300 students. And biology obviously hadn't. So I was able to pull from multiple visits 
and the foundation supporting me was very generous. It also supported a rapporteur, so so to say, at each of the colleges I was investigating. And the rapporteur would be the person on site who would do the interviewing for me under my direction. And then I would write up them as case studies. And it's a lovely book. Yeah, so, and, and so, you know, again, this is... Uh interesting very interesting and then then the story continues into science careers and your yes. study of science careers and this work you did on the professional science masters can yeah. you tell what can you tell us about that yeah and that was the best funded of any by inventions uh, the Sloan Foundation to yep. their credit over 12 years invested uh, 25 million dollars in this program so here's where that began it everything begins with me with a question or with the observation of an anomaly, something that's not making sense. So I had dealt with the first-year course in science in one book, and I was looking at reform of the science undergraduate curriculum. But all the while, I was meeting a lot of science majors, and I got the impression from them, not from anyone, but overall, that those who were good at science, you know, the best, were being encouraged solely, only to go into a research career. Research is king yep. in the sciences, not in engineering, which makes me like the engineers a lot, but it's king. And so if you were very good, you would be invited to apply to graduate school and go out and get a Ph.D. and do research. All the while, lots of students, and I certainly was one of them, may not be suitable for the Ph.D. That's where my own experience came sure. in. I don't mean intellectually, it's obvious I am, but um, emotionally or, or sociologically or in terms of our lifestyle or sure. the fact that we're already married at that age. So I was determined to find out whether there isn't another way to capture some very good students of science for business and industry. Uh, of course, so in a way, competing with the engineers. And we did that. We invented a new degree. We called it the Professional Science Masters. And the master's degree among most physical scientists is considered a failed Ph.D., but we made it a positive degree. And we added to advanced work in science, of course, they have to have that to get a master's, we added short courses or certificate programs in business fundamentals, the legal environment of business, clinical trials management for biology majors, and other useful and usable skill sets that they could take out with them, along with an internship, right into the world of work. And that brought me back, ipso facto, to women and women's needs, because Mm. a large number, not half, but almost half, of the uh, enrollees in the PSM, and there are now, as of today, 6,000 graduates who've gotten the PSM degree, a lot of the girls that I interviewed when I traveled around told me they loved the concept of the degree because... They would have a a terminal degree. They wouldn't have to go back to school at age 24. They could have a career up and running by age 30, and they could be have something portable because women know, even however revolutionized society has become, that we very often are expected to follow our husbands. And so a portable degree, a portable expertise, they could use in a bank or in a consulting firm or in a school was of great value. So we over-appealed to uh, females, and I tracked the 6,000 graduates in 2011 for the foundation, and absolutely every one of them had a job. 
Nice. Great story. Let's let's take a break and we'll come back and talk a little bit more about that. And then I, I want to talk a little bit about your work now in um, teaching engineering and, and technology as uh, as part of a liberal education. Right. Thank you very much. All right. So uh, this is uh, Big Beacon Radio and, and uh, with our guest, uh, Sheila Tobias. And in the next segment, we're going to talk, talk about uh, teaching engineering and technology as part of a liberal education. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of Three Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1 866 472 5790. Again, that's 1 866 472 5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. And our final segment is sponsored by Big Beacon itself. Join us this fall for a set of free webinars on the 21st century leadership and change acceleration. Watch bigbeacon.org. For details, or write to me, Dave Goldberg, at deg at bigbeacon.org to find out more. So in the last segment, we're, and we're joined again in this final segment by Sheila Tobias. In the last segment, we were talking about, well, we talked about all kinds of stuff. We talked about uh, math anxiety, uh, 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 some of the problems in teaching uh, undergraduate science, and uh, some difficulties in the structure of scientific careers. And in this segment, uh, you know, Sheila, you've uh, the latest uh, bit of uh, provocation that you've involved yourself in has been uh, – uh, Trying to get uh, the teaching and engineering, uh, engineering and technology for non-engineers as as something important. Why, why is that important to you? Well, before we start that, why don't I just walk you into the back of my house <laughs> to my bookshelf and realize okay. that in a lifetime of reading, reading widely because people in my subject area tend to learn by reading. I collected uh, a range of books about engineering, about engineering feats, the history of engineering that would impress you, I'm sure, Dave. I mean, probably 40 books in total. And realized as I hung out with other people from history and literature and languages that they don't read this stuff and that that is a terrible loss, not just to them, but to our country, because it means we have a population of voters and even activists who don't know and here's the way I phrase it, what engineers do and how they think about what they do. 
I mean, my mayor in this little town I live in has uh, told me that two-thirds of the decisions he participates in, he doesn't make, of course, by himself, uh, have to do with, you know, water supplies and wastewater and uh, roads and uh, engineering-type issues. And as a lawyer, of course, he wasn't trained to know enough about it to make these decisions by himself. So I came to the startling conclusion in the, I suppose, last third of my life that the liberal education that we presumably require of our you know, students in history and literature and languages and philosophy and art is woefully inadequate, even if we ask them to do a course in science, because it doesn't expose them to what engineers do and how they think about what they do, not to mention the history of our uh, country and, and the world. Uh, I have a book on my uh, shelf that I've read, which is about uh, technology and imperialism in the 19th century, that much of the foray, the exposure and the, the conquest that the European countries undertook in order to go into Vietnam and to go into Malaysia sure. and to go into Nigeria were fueled by discoveries of uh, making more useful uh, certain raw materials like rubber. Rubber was not nearly as useful until vulcanizing had been yes. discovered. You know, by Goodyear, everybody in engineering knows that story, but nobody in history knows that story, or very few. There's well, actually, few. very few engineers know that story, oh, and I. So I, I bet your 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 book collection. I wish that my colleagues' uh, book collections looked like yours. And and part, you know, one of the things that we've done fairly recently has tried to create interest among engineers in the philosophy of engineering. Actually, there's a movement towards engineering studies. Uh, there's a journal of that name now that sort of in, in many ways pays homage to you know black studies and, and women's mm-hmm. studies. It's a sort of neat. We need that because there's very little emphasis on many of the things that you're talking about. This, the uh, your reference of Kuhn, the the uh, the there's emphasis on the sociology of science, but not actually so much about technology and engineering. Engineering is merely applied science, as far as uh, scientists are concerned, or or historians of science are concerned, and and as kind of a side note, and right. and that nothing could be further from the truth. Right, and so I found a foundation which will remain not named or not only because it's my choice, that was uh, very actively involved in recommending and helping develop courses for engineering students in the liberal arts. And I remember saying to the president when we had our sit-down chat, I said, you know, this is a two-way street. And she really didn't exactly know what I was talking about, by which I meant, and she quickly found out that I meant it because she funded me to do the first uh, year of work in this field, which meant that Majors in the non-technical fields need to know much more than they do about technology and engineering. So I began uh, only in 2015, not very long ago, to identify existing courses. It's certainly not for me to design a course about engineering for the sure. blind students. You, know, you can understand I'm modest as well as sure of myself. But I suspected, and I did know from hearsay, that there were perhaps a dozen uh, exemplary courses that are doing extremely well around the country. And I set out to um, kind of tell their stories, again, as a writer. I had long interviews with the people who are teaching them, asking all kinds of questions, and uh, wrote case studies of 12, ranging from Princeton 
to University of Delaware, to Wellesley, uh, of wonderful courses, marvelous syllabi, and the details about who's taking those courses and what they're doing with it. And now, right now, I am trying to build that into uh, the kind of national movement that we did with women's studies, if we can. Uh, great stuff. And I was looking on that list. I, 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 I didn't study it in detail, but I saw, so I noticed McAllister was on it. Uh, Diane Michael Felder was uh, provost of that organization and was one of the the founding movers and shakers in the, uh, the Forum on Philosophy, Engineering, and Technology. She's a philosopher by a philosopher of technology by by training. John Krupchak is a colleague here uh, just up the road at Hope College who's had, for many years, actually had a successful course along these lines, which he teaches in a liberal, liberal arts uh, context. Right. But also, I was struck, again, critically, I suppose I'm as much a critic as I am a, a builder of programs, critically by NSF's phraseology. They spoke of the need, and they did it for at least a decade, to uh, improve the yeah. technological literacy, they call it yeah. technological literacy, of people like me. Well, that may be the case, but it's certainly not a very flattering way of putting it, because the one thing people like me think we are is literate, of course. Yeah. So I, uh, looking around and meeting wonderful people, including another guy up the road from you, uh, Jim Duderstadt from Michigan, heard him say on the telephone, and I immediately adopted it as my mantra, that technological literacy has to be grounded in the intellectual discipline of engineering. And I thoroughly support that notion. The intellectual discipline of engineering has to be acknowledged as a discipline, as, an in, as having intellectual heft. Yeah. And that is part of my, my mantra today. It's yet, of course, to get the liberal arts students to know more about and better taught engineering courses, and let's tell the world who's doing it and how they're doing it. But also to bring a, a, a pride back, and you may consider this a, a sort of immodest, a pride back to engineering itself as a subject matter. There's yeah. an intellectual discipline that has to be, that can stand alongside of the disciplines of science. I'm also struck with the fact that science dominates and there are reasons for that historically, which your listeners may not need to hear about. But science dominates. We don't have the equivalent of Scientific American, which comes monthly into the house, I live in, sure. uh, for engineering. You know, we have some magazines, of course, that are meant for engineers. But something that will elaborate on the achievements of engineers, on the nature of engineering as a field, to a general public. We yep. have science correspondence in many newspapers as long as they can afford them. I don't think we have technology. 15 seconds. Pardon? And we've just got a few seconds left. I, I want to give you a chance. So I, I wish we could go on, Sheila. You, ju you just uh, pushed uh, about four of my hot buttons, but we don't <laughs> well, have we any more time. But off offline. But let me say but, sort of in summary as a, as a way, if there are students uh, who tune in or, read, uh, or listen okay. on iTunes, have confidence in your aberrations. If you're not conforming, it may be for good reason that the conforming paradigm isn't suited to you. And if you're enthusiastic about what you do, you know, stick with it and somebody will come along and pay or maybe publish. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Sheila, for being with us. Bye-bye.
You've been listening to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education with Dave Goldberg. Special thanks to our guest, uh, Sheila Tobias. You can reach her at SheilaTobias.com. Help transform higher education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovation innovators by learning more at BigBeacon.org. Joining us after the show at hashtag BigBeacon on Twitter to to, um, to talk with Emma Schoenfellner and, and me about the, today's show. And join us next week, same time, same channel, in our quest to transform higher education. Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.